0: Welcome to another episode of The Raven Narratives. I'm Sarah Severson.
1: And I'm Tom Yoder. We are the co-producers of The Raven Narratives. And of course, we are both sheltering at home during the current coronavirus pandemic. So we're recording our podcast introductions on a Zoom call today.
0: The story you're about to hear was told in March of 2020 at our storytelling events at the Durango Arts Center and the Sunflower Theater, when the theme was firsts and lasts.
1: Andy Wingard is the owner of Ignited Imagery, a photography and videography company in Durango, Colorado. They are also a member of Toastmasters International and Business Networking International. Andy and girlfriend Christy with Boston Terror, Blanca, enjoy hiking, biking, and kayaking. Andy has been a storyteller and comedian since they learned to talk. Andy aspires to breed dragons and fly them around the world. Here is Andy's story.
2: If you have a seatbelt you might want to put it on. (laughs) You might say she was my best friend. We used to talk on the phone two, three times a week. Sometimes for so long my phone battery had run out. It was Friday 5.30, day after Thanksgiving in 2018. I received a phone call from the emergency room doctor saying that she had a stroke. Well, you're the power of attorney. We're wanting to know if it would be okay if we administer the clot busting drug and then we're going to flight for life her to from Bisbee to uh, TMC, Tucson Medical Center. I call Becky and I make arrangements for us to meet Saturday afternoon together in TMC. We get there within about five minutes or so of each other. I look at her and everything I see on her face is the way I feel. Worried, tired, a little anxious, nervous. Not sure what we're gonna see. We hold hands and we walk in the room together. She's hooked up to a few machines, but doesn't appear to have any paralysis. And she's actually kind of speaking animated. Seems pretty good. Really looks really good. Really good. She seems a little embarrassed that she's there and that we came this far. But, you know, of course we will. Of course we'd be there for her. About 7.30 that evening, they're going to make the determination to move her from ICU to a step-down room. And the doctor agrees that's a good call. Nurses come and they start wheeling her down the hallway and we're we're walking with her and getting kind of excited because this is really good. But she seems agitated, like irritated. She's making these crazy statements. She says, I've been to this hotel before and the food is terrible. (laughs) I don't want to go there. Andy, don't make me go there. Can't we just go home or just go back? Can we just go back there? No matter what Becky and I tell her, trying to placate her, calm her down and everything, say it's okay. They gave you this clot-busting drug. You know, it's dangerous for you to be out in the world with your blood so thin. We get to the room, and now she's getting angry. She looks at the food. It's slop. She doesn't want to eat it. The bed's not comfortable. She doesn't want to sit in it. She doesn't want to watch TV either. We keep talking to her, trying to placate her downplay this whole thing. It's going to be fine. You'll get to go home in a day or two. At one point, she just gets up and walks across the room, sits down in this metal chair, just. (coughs) And she quits talking to us. She's angry. I go and talk to the head nurse, hey, maybe we can give her something. Bring this down a minute, you know? <laughs> nurse comes in, he's a man. Apparently that's new to her, that men can be nurses. <laughs> so she's cruel to him. He leaves and he says, I think we'll move your mom to a more comfortable room. I'm like, okay, two hours go by, Finally, he comes in with four other nurses. They're grabbing gloves out of the box, putting them on. One of them's wheeling a wheelchair in. Okay, Mrs. Taylor, we're here to get you and move you to your new room. Her eyes get big as saucers, and she gets up and bolts towards me. I'm leaning against the bathroom door. She comes and tries to open the door. Andy, let me get in the room. Let me get in the bathroom. I knew if we let her in there, we were never gonna extricate her from the bathroom. (laughs) I put my foot down. No, she starts hitting me, fist after fist in the chest. I grab one of her hands and she's like, tries to bite me. The nurses grab her and up in the air, she is kicking her legs and just crazy. Wow, it's something I can't, (laughs) oh man. They get her in the wheelchair and she sticks her hips out. Oh, you're never going to take me. Help! Call the police! They're trying to abduct me! Call the police! Help! They get her spun around and start taking her out of the front door. Boom! She puts both feet out like a cat trying to give her a bath. Back her up. They back her out of the door and down the hallway. She sticks her fingers in those wheels. Help! Call the police! Oh my gosh, they're trying to get her undone. They wheel her into this room that's got all the big plexiglass on there. And they have a big PVC pipe chair. They pick her up and stick her in there and Velcro her down in there. She's kicking her legs. And she looks back over her, her shoulder and says, I'll never forgive you for this. The curtains close. Becky and I are in the hallway, stunned. I've never seen anything like that before. For the next two days, she's strapped to a bed, refusing medication, water, food, mumbling things that don't make any sense, conversations with people who aren't there. Finally, she comes, too, and we have her back. Becky has to go home. She's in college, so she needs to go back. I'm there alone. We talked to Mom. Tell her, you've got to uh, go to a rehab facility because she, during all this struggle, had Something happened to her brain. She couldn't get out of bed, not even with the help of a walker. She couldn't take care of herself. She agrees. She thinks that's probably an okay job. She'll stay. I find a place in Tucson called Handmaker. It's a really clean, beautiful place. They accept her. They're going to move her on Friday. Friday morning, I go back to Bisbee pack up all our soft, fluffy things, you know, that sweatshirt with the kitty cat on it and <laughs> fluffy things, soft things. Put them in a case, get all the way back. They've already moved her to Handmaker. I get there, not sure what to expect. It had snapped. She was furious. I get there with her case. She picks up all her stuff Throws it. I want to go home. I can't believe you put me in this place. It's an insane asylum. It's for people who are crazy. I'm not crazy. No matter what I say, I try to placate her. No, it's just for you to get strong again, to get your body back. She's furious. The nurse says, I think you should go. You're kind of getting her agitated. Maybe if you come back tomorrow, things will be better. As I'm leaving, she says, I'll never forgive you for this. The next day I come back in and she's in a coma or so she's acting like it. She maintains that state for two more days. She acts like she can't speak. She's just laying there. I know her. On Sunday morning, I wake up about 5.30, check my phone, I see I missed four phone calls. There's a a message. It's from the head nurse at Handmaker saying that she woke up at two in the morning, screaming bloody murder that her chest was hurting. She had numbness and tingling in her arm and pain in her jaw. They sent her, they took her blood pressure, it was 200 and something over 190 something crazy numbers and they send her by ambulance to TMC. I get to TMC, I all but run down to the emergency room, find a nurse, I say, where's Barbara Taylor? She says, we received a fax that she would be here, but she never showed up. What does that mean? She says, well, I don't know. You'll have to go to Handmaker and find out. I go back there and I speak with the head nurse and she seems surprised. She says, well, I'll call dispatch. She calls dispatch. "Uh Uh-huh. Hmm. Okay, I'll let them know. Apparently, en route, they changed their destination to Trauma Center in Banner University. Here, I'll write down the directions. I was like, I don't need them. I ran, ran as fast as I could. I got out to my minivan, my midlife crisis vehicle. (laughs) Off we go, Siri get me directions to Banner University Hospital. I get there in the emergency room. I ask, where's Barbara Taylor? Lady looks on the screen, it's glowing green on her face. She says, well, they're not ready for you yet. She rips off a sticky note and writes, E26. Here, put this on your chest, like a name tag. Have a seat. I'm sitting in the waiting room with two gentlemen that are snoring and reek of alcohol and dirty feet. (laughs) Snoring unpleasant. We're there a long time. Seemed like an eternity. I'm sure it probably wasn't that long, but sure seemed like it. Finally, the lady says, E-26, they're ready for you. Go through the double doors and down the hallway. <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going. They're just not that nice in Tucson, like Durango. <laughs> <laughs> I walk down the hallway, and I see a placard, and it says, E24, next one's E25. I'm like, okay, it's room number, I get it now. I get to E26 and the curtains are drawn. I'd been thinking for the whole time I was waiting that they were gonna tell me that she was dead. Or maybe that she was in surgery. I had no idea what I was gonna walk into. I centered myself, took a deep breath, and I opened the curtains. And there she is, sitting in the bed, with those yellow hospital socks with the stickies on there, just kind of wiggling her toes, <laughs> sucking on a little sucky straw, watching a western with <laughs> a little smile on her face. Mom, you're okay. Oh my God, you're alive. I can't believe it. Her expression changes immediately, like I have a knife in my hand and gonna stab her. She grabs the remote thing that has little buttons on it. She starts pressing the button, pressing the button, looking frantic. Finally, a man's voice comes on and says, Can I help you? There's a person in my room that needs to be removed immediately. That's the last time I saw her. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Andy, for sharing your story with us.
0: To pitch your story for a future Raven Narratives event, fill out the contact form on our website at ravennarratives.org. We can't wait to gather together again and connect to the magic of live storytelling.
1: Our May events are unfortunately canceled due to coronavirus concerns, but we are hopeful that we'll be able to host our slam storytelling event in September when the theme will be Lost, Found. And we are especially excited about our event in November when the theme will be Letting Go, Holding On. That event will be in collaboration with 20 Moons Contemporary Dance Theater Company, providing interpretive movement and music alongside the storytelling. So don't miss it. Check the events page at ravennarratives.org for more information.
0: And don't forget to subscribe to the Raven Narratives Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and share these stories with your friends and family. During times like these, we are especially grateful for all of the stories from the Raven Narratives archives over the past four years.
1: Big thanks goes to our fiscal nonprofit sponsor, Mancus Valley Resources. Find out more about all the important projects they support in the Mancus Valley of Colorado at Resources.com.
0: The website for buying Raven Narratives tickets, ravennarrativestickets.org, was created by Cortez Web Services. Find out how they can help your business online at CortezWeb.com.
1: Our theme music was written and composed by Mo Cooley and performed by Mo and the Motones. Find out more about their music on the Motones Facebook page. That's M-O-E Tones on Facebook.